0: This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar.
1: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. Today, we are joined by a woman who really needs no introduction. Dee, Dee Myers, she was the first woman ever to serve as White House press secretary, and she's gone on to a great career as an author, lecturer, and political observer. Dee Dee's experience on the campaign trail and inside the White House makes her one of the giants in the world of polyoptics. And I promise you, we will leave no stone unturned as we engage her in this week's show. I am joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, as I was production chief in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, it's great to have you here.
0: It's great to be with you, as always, Adam. Uh, Interesting the way these weeks go, isn't it? I mean, two weeks ago, we had what seemed like silly season with The Donald Trump escapade to New Hampshire. And then we got deadly serious for a week with the raid in Abbottabad and the killing of Osama bin Laden. And now we're sort of back to silly season. And these issues are not silly at all. But what's dominating the headlines as of Saturday, Sunday, uh, and through the week? It's been Dominic Strauss-Kahn of the IMF and Arnold Schwarzenegger, the former governor of California.
1: Silly, but so sad. Uh, I must tell you, I have personal uh, dealings with the International Monetary Fund and uh, know how hard the men and women uh, of that organization, the world over work, how singularly dedicated they are to trying to make a difference in stemming the tide of the financial crisis that fell on this country and the rest of the world in 2008. But... The images that have dominated the headlines around this scandal in particular are just beyond belief. The eminent Dominique Strauss-Kahn... DSK, as he's often referred to, getting the full perp walk in New York City. He's been rumored now to be on suicide watch. We see him in court as a defeated and, you know, just former shadow of himself right now. And to have fallen from grace and to have been involved in such a scandal, it's just unbelievable and the governor also has been having his problems josh
0: yeah 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 it's been a very difficult week for governor schwarzenegger for former governor schwarzenegger i um and and the aspects the polyoptic aspects of the perp walk brought really home in so many different ways we see uh, arnold schwarzenegger driving himself out of his garage in los angeles what an awesome
1: car though i mean he makes that look good still (laughs)
0: but (laughs) and and talk about uh the total other coast can you imagine what it was like saturday night at john f kennedy airport Police officers of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey raiding an to, Air
1: France flight.
0: Raiding an Air France flight, first class, taking one of their passengers out and bringing him to Rikers Island.
1: Talk about the polyoptics, though, because what you have, and, and, and I swear to you, uh, for folks who are listening to us on Sirius XM 124 POTUS, uh, the video of Dominique Strauss Kahn uh, in handcuffs, him wearing the same clothes day after day. Uh, just beaten up. But the image, though, of a French socialist would be president of France doing a layover on his own dime at the Sofitel on a $3,000 a night suite, jumping on the West African maid accused of rape, and then the next night he's in Rikers Island.
0: You only in Times Square and in New York can some of these things happen, because as we've seen from the coverage, uh, whether it's uh, Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi in Italy or uh, the 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 many relationships that former French President Francois Mitterrand had in France in Europe, this stuff seems to not get nearly as much notice as it does when you have the New York Post and the Daily News uh, and all the the media ready to jump on it like they did here.
1: From an institutional perspective, to, to bring it back to the serious uh, elements here, it has done damage beyond... Uh, belief when it comes to the fund, to its reputation, to what people will think about when they hear about the the International Monetary Fund, uh, grossly misunderstood and underappreciated organization, uh, and it's it's very it's very sad. But you know we have the ability today to sort of take a look at all of this through the eyes of somebody who has been there and done that in a in a very sort of cutting-edge way. We've got the first woman ever to serve as a White House press secretary and somebody that you know very well as our guest here today on Polyoptics.
0: Dee Myers went to work for then-Governor Bill Clinton in late 1991, connected to the Arkansas governor by the chairman of his campaign, Mickey Cantor, and I met Dee in uh, early 1992, and it stands to reason that if Dee Dee, uh Bruce Lindsay, and an Arkansas State Trooper were the only people flying around with Governor Clinton going from small town to small town building that nascent campaign, for me as an advanced man, the people who came off the plane, and Dee, Dee was one of the first, were the coolest people on earth. And I got to know Dee, Dee progressively better during the campaign, and then when we got to the White House... Uh, I was one of President Clinton's schedulers. Dee Dee was, of course, President Clinton's first press secretary. And a job came open for director of production for presidential events, and it really was a job that reported to Dee Dee. And I lodged a a feverous lobbying campaign to get the job, and uh, I really do owe my first real huge break at the White House to Dee Dee Myers. But when I was the president's scheduler, I was responsible for a trip to Los Angeles uh, in the early months of 1993. And I was looking at my schedule and I was looking at a ticker on the board that showed when Air Force One was supposed to be taking off from LAX. And it wasn't taking off on time. And what turns out, and I think Dee will shed some light on really what happened, was the president was getting a a haircut uh, by the the stylist uh, Kristoff. and a, a brouhaha ensued of gargantuan order, and it managed to to occupy the airwaves in a time before uh, Drudge Report, before things like uh, Mike Allen's playbook. Dee how did that metastasize back in those days? <laughs>
2: Just delving into my mind for old nightmares. Anyway, <laughs> Josh, it's great to be here with you. We had uh, we go back a long way, as you said. Uh, that was not one of our better days. Um, you know, it was a. I think it was a, it was an afternoon. I don't remember what day of the week it was. Maybe a Tuesday, and it was th- sort of it, we had a good trip to Los Angeles, and the plane was on the tarmac, and present needed a haircut, and. So somebody said, well, let's take him by uh, the salon, and people said, oh, God, no, that'll tie up traffic all over downtown L.A. and in Beverly Hills, plus it's Beverly Hills. Let's just have Christoph come on the plane, and he'll do a quick haircut, and we'll be on our way. And so that's what happened. Christoph came on the plane. He gave the president... Honestly, the best haircut he ever had, the last haircut Kristoff ever gave him. Um, But anyway, we sat on the tarmac for a while, and then, you know, we were sort of goofing around, and no one was in a hurry because we were just going back to Washington, and the day was over. Um, And what happened was the president did something he rarely did at that time, which was he went, after he got his haircut, he went into the back, uh, into the press cabin on Air Force One, just random. He'd never done that. I was happy to be back there, and all of a sudden, here he comes. And one of the reporters John King, who's now well known as an anchor on CNN, looked at him as he was, as he, he chatted with him for a few minutes and then he walked back to the front of the plane and John said, did he get his hair cut? And he said, who was the guy I saw going off the back steps of the plane? The guy with the long hair that I have, have sometimes seen on the campaign trail and uh, now that the president was at the White House and, you know, I think I told him it wasn't a secret. But somehow that story morphed and the delayed takeoff morphed with the story that, that the president sitting on the tarmac had tied up air traffic all over the country. Uh, and that's the story that got into the into the bloodstream of the news cycle. And bef- and we didn't take it seriously enough. Quite frankly, I look back on that as, as actually a failure of mine to not see how damaging that story would be because it, A, wasn't a big deal to any of us, and B, wasn't true. Um, but anyway, and it was the connecting, the president getting his hair cut by this high-priced Beverly Hills coiffeur with inconveniencing ordinary Americans who were just trying to get home to their families that that made this such a delicious story for for the press. And um anyway, it took us we never there was a part of the president that didn't recover for that for for years. Um, and I think we we could have handled it much differently if if we had been more sensitive to the to the optics.
1: It is uh, for me a great treat to be sitting across the table from you and having this discussion today. Uh, i I suppose that, your ability with the benefit of hindsight having lived through it having grown through the experience of having been involved in campaigns well before you came uh to the highest level of politics guiding uh a presidential campaign the way that you did but then also taking the lead as the uh face and voice of the administration right out of the gate um, you, as you look back today do you ever compare sort of the experiences and the, and the elements of uh, what you thought you needed to do with what you're seeing people do, especially with mistakes? I'm sure it may be something you went through during the Bush administration and even now in the Obama administration. But how do you look back and think, God, they've just fallen uh, and, and kind of gotten, got into their own way?
2: Well we you know you see that happen all the time especially from the lofty perch of what one Monday morning quarterback that right. people like me now occupy um but I, I think the things that what I more often think is wow I thought things were moving fast back in 1993 or 1994 or 1995 what blows my mind is how fast things move now and how little time there is to try to stop a story I mean I think I I misunderstood the power that the haircut story was going to have uh, even, it, but but there was enough time that if I'd understood it better, I could have probably helped to at least minimize the damage. Now, a story like that would be around the world before almost anybody could do anything about it. If it's a good story, particularly if there's a good picture that goes with it, it is really hard um, to get out ahead of it. And I think it's so much harder now the speed with which information moves. You know,
1: Don Rumsfeld uh, used to say, uh, "In the time it takes truth to get its its boots on." A lie is halfway around the world. Well, I mean, that's, they,
2: that's actually Mark Twain, who's uh, thought to be the original author of well, that Well, you know, as quote. a
1: Republican, I'm just going to put it on...
2: <laughs> Mark Twain may have been a Republican. <laughs> I don't want to smirch his reputation, but... Um, no, but it's true, and I think, you know, so I, I, I sometimes, you know, I, I think it's hard to sometimes avoid um, the temptation to second-guess decision-making, but more often I think, boy, that's a tough one, and I can't imagine how, you know, you're on the inside and you have so little time to thoughtfully respond, whether it's something trivial, like getting your hair cut. I mean, who really cares except it, it, that the untruth that it inconveniences people, but there's really serious issues at stake every single day and the president and the people around him and CEOs of large corporations and, you know, doctors and people have very little time to make um, really important decisions. I think that's one of the downsides of the information age in which we live.
0: Dee, you you wrote a book a couple of years ago, "Why Women Should Rule the World," uh, and uh, sold a ton of copies, and it's still available at Amazon.com and other places. You gave an interesting interview to Time Magazine uh, as you were rolling it out, and you talked about your own experience as White House Press Secretary and how President Clinton gave you the opportunity and the responsibility, but probably not the authority and you talked later about one of your successors dana perino who worked for president bush who sort of basically was able to to build on on the position you had but can you bring us back to the 90s and some of the the challenges you faced and probably what led you to write that book and and the message you were trying to impart
2: um well sure it um you know, I was the first woman to be White House press secretary. I was also one of the younger people to ever hold the job. It's I'm also from California. I, I sometimes call that the trifecta of how not to go to Washington. It creates a pretty challenging set of circumstances. But you know, I, I was 31 when I when President Clinton was elected, and. I'd never lived or worked in Washington, but I'd been the press secretary on the campaign. I had a you know strong relationship, working relationship with, with Bill Clinton. He wanted to find a place for me in the White House. He understandably wasn't sure that um, I was quite ready to step into the press secretary's job, but... He had a bit of a, wo- of a woman problem. You know, he had made a pledge during the campaign, one I think he truly believed in, which was to have an administration that looked like America, which was to say that people who had traditionally been left out of um, decision-making roles at the highest levels of government would be would be uh, present. And, and there was a lot of pressure on him to appoint women to the cabinet and to senior staff positions. And as the cabinet positions were being filled and the senior staff positions were being filled, women's groups were complaining there aren't enough women. And so I think he was between, felt he was a little between a rock and a hard place politically. And so he gave me the title of press secretary, but I had a smaller office and a lesser title rank, which was important internally, and and a lesser salary than my male predecessors. And everybody sort of knew what that meant. And so from the very beginning, I had to fight for uh, the authority that I think my predecessors, who'd all been male and uh, had from, from the beginning and it, it, it made things difficult. And ultimately, um, you know, I, I, I fought it because not, not because it was uncomfortable for me, although it it was at times, but because it was not in the president's interest.
1: No, to have your press secretary not be an assistant to the president. Right. Uh, puts you at a distinct disadvantage. Right. And what was your title at that point?
2: Uh, deputy assistant.
1: Okay. So that really puts you behind the eight ball with the rest of the senior staff.
2: Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it and the way the White House was structured in the typically kind of um, Democratic slash Clintonian ways of the f- first, there was there were too many people in that space on top of that. So you had D- uh, George Stephanopoulos, who everyone knew and respected. Uh, and he did the briefing in the beginning, but that wasn't really what he wanted to do. And then there was another wonderful guy named Mark Guerin, who became the communications director. Then we brought in this other guy named David Gergen, who we all know, uh, who... Uh, had a communications portfolio. And so there was a lot of people playing in the same space, which just exacerbated the problem. So even people who, you know, who were trying to be corporate said, well, I told Gergen, or I told Geeran, or I told George, you know, I assumed that everyone in the communications shop would would know. And so I found myself playing catch up more often than I would have liked. And, you know, the press doesn't care really a lot about who you are, or where you come from, as long as they feel like they can trust you to provide the information that they need, and you never can provide enough. But, you know, if there's somebody that can provide more, then they want that person. And so it it created a a tough situation for me. Um, But ultimately, you know, I, I, uh, when Leon Panetta became chief of staff, uh, we got into kind of a row about how the press communication shop should be structured. Um, I, you know, it it went to the president. Uh, He uh, sided with me in, in, in that I was given uh, the title of the assistant to the president. I was given the bigger office. They gave me the bigger salary, but the cost of that was that I was in a bad position with the, with the chief of staff. So ultimately I left, you know, four or five months after all that went down. Um, I didn't regret the, my decision to, to, to do, to pursue that structure. Cause I knew it was in, I really believed in my heart. It was, it was the only viable structure for the president. Um, but, you know, it's not exactly how I have written the end of that story.
0: So so skip forward uh, 15 years and uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, when we knew her, the first lady of Arkansas, then the first lady of the United States, and then the senator from New York, she gets within a couple primaries and caucuses of the Democratic nomination. And now skip forward to just a couple days ago, you write for Politico a, a very provocative piece called Women 2012 Campaign Sideshows, in which you talk about some of the women uh, prominent in the headlines this year, either as potential presidential candidates being provocative but unelectable and women who are provocative, pro- who are provocative but may render their husbands unelectable. What's uh, what was your thinking behind r- writing this piece? What's the feedback then?
2: You know, I I follow the progress of women in politics pretty closely. I, some might argue obsessively. Um, But, you know, and and I think that it's never as progress is never a straight line up or forward, you know, and I'm generally pretty optimistic, but I have found it hard and as this cycle has shaped up to be very uh, optimistic about how women will fare in this, you know, two year cycle. Um, The two women who've been talked about as potential presidential candidates are Uh, Sarah Palin, who's now well-known to the country, and the more people know about her, the less they're able to see her as president, and Michelle Bachman, who has said things like the Founding Fathers ended slavery, or the shots heard around the world at Concord and Lexington. That one one hurt the most. And you know what? She said that not once, but twice. It wasn't like she slipped (laughs) because she was in New Hampshire, which you might have been able to argue if she didn't go to another speech that day and say the same thing. And where... Where are the staff?
1: No, nowhere.
2: So, not only does she not know that, no one around (laughs) her who's reading or typing or proofreading or handing her copies of her remarks knows that. It's, you know, there's probably a lot of people in America who don't know that, unfortunately. I think the President of the United States ought to. So, I mean, that's you can sit here and take shots, and I know a lot of people think Michelle Bachman is provocative and interesting and compelling and has her finger on something important. But I think for me, these aren't the, 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 you know, the prepared. Uh, women who've worked hard and have have uh, paid their dues that I want to see on the front lines of of of, compa- of, el- of elective office.
1: You are listening to Polyoptics here on POTUS Sirius One Twenty Four. Uh, we are talking with Dede Myers, uh, former press secretary to President Bill Clinton, uh, author and contributor to many properties uh, in the media, including Vanity Fair. Uh, this conversation about twenty twelve is one that is just really getting underway because just this week we're we're seeing uh the former governor of utah the former u.s ambassador to china uh john huntsman make his first uh trip up to new hampshire and he's being guided by uh... some adults from the advanced world who have good experience but it's the first time he's gonna really be pictured or seen or perceived by the electorate in a very real one-on-one way if you go out there and start looking for pictures of huntsman uh... to this point you've got pictures of him with harry reid in china maybe a picture of him in a very expensive tuxedo at or on uh, a harley right but but this is this is really what polyoptics is about in in addition to the substance of getting out there and trying to meet people but you've been through this before in exactly the same places what are the challenges for for presidential contenders at this point when they're trying to get out there and become known in the right places
2: well, it, it's in some ways, it's the tension between getting noticed and making a mistake. You know, you want to you wanna do something that sets you apart, particularly in a crowded field. The Republican field is pretty crowded right now, although there's more people getting out than getting in. Um, Obama, I think, looks m- more, um, you know, he, he looks harder to beat than people would have thought maybe a few months ago. Uh, but that said, I think for somebody like uh, John Huntsman, you want to go to New Hampshire, you want to have a m- message that's... C- clear. It may continue to evolve, but that's at least clear uh, that you know why you're running. You want to say things that are going to get people's attention, that are, are going to set you apart from the field, but without stepping over that very sometimes fine line between being a little provocative and disqualifying yourself. And so that's what people will be looking for. Does he have some charisma? Does he have a message? Does he have a has he carved out a, a piece of real estate for himself where? He can differentiate himself from the other people in this field. Um, And can he do that without alienating important elements of the base?
0: As Adam said, uh, we may know John Huntsman, if at all, as the former ambassador to China and, uh, and his role in Utah. But uh, as he goes to New Hampshire for, a, a th- I think, a four-day swing this weekend, and as you read his bio and some of the stuff that's available about him, you see that he was uh, he played in an R.E.O. Speedwagon cover band mm-hmm. earlier in his life. And well, right there, you know,
2: is that disqualifying? I mean, well, but it wasn't but, like a Beatles cover band.
0: But bring us back to the Arsenio Hall show and showing that. Governor Clinton had a particular talent, and what were the tensions involved in that kind of an appearance, which has now become de rigueur in American politics?
2: Well, it's one of the ways you can separate yourself, right? It's a, it's a, it's a way you can stand out. It's a picture that people remember, and when in in nineteen ninety two, you know. Bill Clinton had a very up and down primary season and as we were just going the period wrapping up enough de- delegates to claim the nomination there were some in the press who were writing about how Bill Clinton you know, it would be a brokered convention that Clinton didn't have a grasp on the nomination even though he had theoretically enough delegates that there would be a challenge and all these things the press likes to write about in June of an election cycle uh, so one of the things that we decided to do to try to break out of that and to reach an audience that doesn't normally pay a lot of attention to politics particularly that early was to do some you know pop culture kind of venues, MTV and the Arsenio Hull Show, which was controversial in and of itself... But the pres- uh, the, then Governor Clinton agreed to go on the show and play his saxophone. And as he was about to step out o- onto the stage, Paul Begala reached in his pocket and handed him a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses, which he put on, and he walked out and he played his sax. And the Washington establishment went bananas. You know, they said, this is undignified. It's not worthy of a president. This should be dis- I mean, George Will had a foamer of a column, not surprisingly, saying that, you know, this was just way beneath the dignity of the office and how could he and... Uh, but the rest of the country thought, "Wow, this guy can actually. First of all, he can actually play. You know, he's a, he's actually quite a good musician. And second of all, like that he was free enough to sort of engage with somebody in this context where he wasn't all pl- plastic and yeah, there and was rehearsed. something
1: he was very he was comfortable in his own mm-hmm. skin. He just was at ease and mm-hmm. very you know he was just exhibiting his talent, but in a, in a in a very easy way. And he was very relatable that right. night.
2: And um, and yeah, I think that's right. And and um you know, so at once we stopped listening to the Chattering Class Inside the Beltway, of which now I'm a proud card-carrying member, um, you know, the, the reaction around the country as we went places was really good. And it also, it was, a, it was a, I think, a way that he bridged uh, Arkansas and the African-American community. He had a real relationship with African-Americans, and I think in some way, uh, the Arsenio Hall Show was a writ large kind of view of, uh, of that. Um, and, you know, we never looked back.
1: I don't know, for my to sense that uh that, that instance is is correlative to uh uh President Obama's ability to to do the same thing on the Oprah Winfrey show. I mean it, it just it feels a little guarded uh even when I see him on the view and some of these things that uh they don't feel forced. I mean I, I think the president is always sort of right up to the to the challenge uh and he's got a great sense of humor and he's his antenna are up he understands how people are feeling right around him and so i always get that when i see him but one of the things that that i wanted to ask you about Dee myers is is whether or not this white house whether or not they capitalize upon uh opportunity quite like that if they have figured out a way from a polyoptics perspective to really grasp or leverage uh, the trappings of the presidency. This week we saw the president uh, make a, a short trek over to the State Department to make what they build as a very important speech about the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, and without delving into all of the drama that still unfolds around this Arab Spring and jumping off of uh, the, the killing of Osama bin Laden, what's your take on that? It, 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 it does seem to me that we see a lot of the same... Uh, images and the same constructs. It's hard to differentiate this president's important moments sometimes.
2: Yeah, I, I and I think that as all White Houses, whether it's the Clinton White House or the Bush White House, there's some way all of that reflects the personality of the president. You know, when you're working in the Bush White House or Josh is working in the Clinton White House, there's a certain level of of experimentation that you may or may not be able to do certain the different ways the president is comfortable positioning himself or letting himself be seen or framing his, his message and understanding the symbolism. And this, this president is, is, is not that interested in the symbolism. He's really, he's the world's most rational man. And I, and I mean this mostly as a compliment, but it's, as we know with presidents, sometimes their greatest strengths are about, you know, the, just the flip side of, uh, uh, of something that's a bit of a weakness. And in his case, he believes that he can just make a rational argument. If he can just line up the facts and may, and win the debate, as you would in a debating competition, that oh, everything will fall into place. And, you know, I, I, I think in many ways that's been successful for him. And that is who he is. On the other hand, uh, politics is very emotional, and the symbolism of it is is very important. And I think he's just not comfortable. He thinks, you know, sort of that that, that part of politics is, is, um, perhaps a little contrived and 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 perhaps a little manipulative and he's not very interested in it and so i think we see pictures of him that are you know just just the fact just just put me at the podium with a nice plain backdrop and i'll do josh isn't
1: this just like lazy advance work i mean you know i can give you six flags um and you can put them in front of the president and that pretty much show you every picture you've ever seen of this guy uh making a speech somewhere
0: yeah, but and I've written about this at polyoptics dot com, but having had the and having had the chance to do one major trip for President Obama early in his administration, and I don't think the advanced people who work for President Obama are lacking these ideas or these instincts or the examples that you set, Adam, in the Bush White House or that I worked on in the Clinton White House. I do think there is a significant structure in the White House that says uh, let's keep it bland. Yeah. And um, I think that it for, for me, it's a loss because on May 19th, 2011, the president goes to the State Department, as you said, gives a what he bills is a very important speech about the Middle East and North Africa. And there is nothing for the historical archives and what we will be looking back at 10, 15, 20 years hence to put us in a moment of time and place that distinguishes this Bank of American Flags from the Bank of American Flags that backed up his race speech in Philadelphia in 2008. So I, I think that, that th- just these simple trappings that you and I know how to do to enshrine a moment in time and place and and significance uh, are missing, and that this speech in front of the Bank of American Flags could be last week's speech in front of the Bank of American right,
2: Flags. Right, and I think it misses the opportunity... Uh, to connect on a more emotional level because this is you know I, I'm not sure what if you guys have had a conversation about what the backdrop might have been for the speech on the Middle East and North Africa. Foreign policy speeches tend to be pretty, they are pretty challenging, to, yeah, right? No doubt about that. But nonetheless, I think we could probably come up with 10 examples of speeches where the president might have done it in a, in a, an environment that would have said something to the American people that re- reinforced some point about that speech.
1: But Didi, I think that what we're about to see is a very bifurcated effort where you know on a on a 9 to 5 Monday through Friday kind of way the White House will stick to this strategy as deliberate as it is Um, dictated by the president, and so it's a thoughtful decision, uh, with the campaign, which is going to be much more aggressive, much more evocative of of a Barack Obama, a Senator Obama that we were just coming to know, who was just electrifyingly exciting uh, when he announced for president, uh, when he was on the road and making just incredible uh, headway with large groups of people, because even in those rooms, it wasn't a one-way conversation, he would listen. And, and, and you'd have a bit of give and take, I felt sometimes, though, where where, where people were, felt free to cheer and call out to the president. And uh, I think those things are going to be staged a lot differently and perhaps a lot better. And God bless them, they needed to be for the for the campaign. But I just, I wonder sometimes why they can't take the best practices that they've had sexual sex with and, and bring it into the fold at the White
2: House. Well, it'll be interesting to see how how the campaign evolves, because the the president will be president, you know, and he will be in the middle of all kinds of controversial um, decision making processes throughout the course of the campaign. Um, he has a lot more people shooting at him than he did. There's a lot more to shoot at just because presidents make decisions. Um You know, their favorite backdrop in the campaign was, you you never saw after the first few months, then-Senator Barack Obama, where the backdrop wasn't people. It was
1: always people. It was always people. Always people. And that humanity works for him. He Mm -hmm. made a speech last week uh, down in uh, North Carolina, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, the 101st Airborne. Fort Bragg? Fort Bragg, thank you. And, uh, you know, a lot of soldiers, a lot of military faces in uniform, and it, it... definitely spoke volumes about where he was and who he right. was talking
2: to. Right, and so I, mean, I think we will see that. It's a good question as to why they haven't done a little more of that uh, in his role as president. I mean, he's taken maybe Mario Cuomo's uh, you know, famous saying a bit too, too much to heart, which is that you campaign in poetry, but you govern in prose. And the truth is that in order to govern, you need a little poetry uh, because the job is largely some, is, is not largely, but it's, it's a large part of it is symbolic. And again, it's, it's people make decisions about their leaders based on emotion as much, if not more than they do on reason. And, and I think the president needs to find a way to reconnect um, to people emotionally. I mean, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't. But in the campaign, he did. Uh, you know, and in and, and in a huge way, and and it was a, a largely uh, responsible for him for his success.
0: That's right. There's there's also a significant element of packaging and design that I think went into Obama's successful 2008 campaign, first against Hillary Clinton and then against John McCain. Because in addition to those people, you had at every, almost every stop uh, in the in this new font that was developed for the campaign, the words change we can believe in. And that's obviously, uh, uh not, won't be relevant for a 2012 campaign, but there was still this element of let's build our sites beautifully. Let's present Obama in the same way with the same, uh, recipe of people and words that people could connect to even if they saw just a five second clip of video at the top of the hour with a with an anchor person's voiceover and that is missing with obama as president it's what distinguished him as a more put together campaign than the hillary clinton campaign and certainly over over mccain and palin
1: i have a question for both of you uh josh king and dd myers uh reading this week that uh there is a push within the campaign to pierce through uh... the noise and and reconnect on the platform of digital and social media uh... for the president's campaign certainly uh, even this week around this speech we've been talking about there were live q a elements and added value for for people to be engaged with the white house and 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 I always applaud those things. I don't know how ultimately how valuable they are, but when you take a look at the optics, even in the last couple weeks, Stevie Myers, what what do you make of the picture uh, in the small conference room of the uh, Situation Room, uh, while everyone you know that 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 very important picture that people have talked about with Hillary Clinton putting her hand over her mouth, but but what do you see also a very resolute, very quiet, and almost in the background president of the united states in the corner uh david hume kennerly was on this show a few weeks ago and while he appreciates uh the f- photographic efforts of the white house bemoans the fact that uh, there are there isn't more access of real journalists to capture this president and add an element of veracity uh to his communications so is there truth to that and what do you think about some of these images of barack obama is he uh, living up to this idea that he is uh, the most rational man in the world and somebody who is just no drama.
2: Yeah, I, I think he. I think he is, and I think he doesn't have much interest in the, those candid moments. First of all, it's a White House that likes to control the message, and they were very successful with that during the campaign, and so they've tried to recreate that. and It's easy to understand why, for all of us having been in the White House, and to understand that you know the media is not always interested in showing you in in. in, in your best light. And they're not always interested in showing photographs that are actually representative of the situation, right? So, you know, you get a great photo, but it might not really represent what's going on. So they like to control it. The picture from the sit room uh, is, is a really interesting photo. And it, it it's it's a pretty candid photo. It's a moment. And we don't know whether Hillary was getting ready to sneeze or whether she was caught in what they all said was one of the most, you know, tense moments any of them had ever experienced in their lives. But One of the things I think has become a Rorschach test is the president sitting a a little bit off to the side, sort of a bit hunkered down, clearly intensely focused on what was happening, did not feel the need to be in the center of the room. He did not feel the need to be the center of attention at that moment. He was letting events unfold. That's how I see it. I've heard other people, particularly conservatives or people who don't like him, say, see, he doesn't know, you know, he's sitting over in the corner and these other people are running the foreign policy. I mean, that's not at all what what i think went on in that room or what went on and what history will tell us what went on in the entire episode of of tracking down and and ultimately killing bin laden but it becomes a bit of a rorschach test which is a it's fascinating contribution to the conversation
1: i love that idea that that's what that is josh uh, no
2: at at the end of the day uh the decision
0: to put out that that particular frame belongs to pete souza and barack obama and so they didn't put it out there uh not thinking about trying to convey the idea of the room and and uh the head of JSOC is ba- really at the controls of the computer and uh and secretary gates is there and uh leon panetta is there and so the the national security structure is very much uh, uh involved in 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 this show and and this and what was going on in there and and barack obama joe biden uh, uh are are observing but i think it was as Dee, Dee laid out genuinely a moment
1: you know for me i i tend to to share uh dd's Dee view of it uh, having said that i never would have let that picture out and i never would have allowed that room not that you Why? can in that because i think in the end uh there is some symmetry to having these things laid out properly. I don't necessarily understand why they were in the small conference room. It was tight as hell. You could see people standing in the doorway. It seemed disorganized. It seemed like people were like, you know, standing room only at this point. And it, and it didn't feel as uh, as put together as it might. Knowing, but the, sm-
0: but the small conference room was probably where they had the comms, where they had the video. And it was true. It was the moment.
2: You know, you can be sure they wouldn't have put that picture out if they hadn't gotten him. Oh, for sure. You know, no and doubt. I think that they had the the warm afterglow of success to, to, to where you can afford to put that out. Well, because, can we talk about that for yeah. a second?
1: Because from a communications perspective, there's a lot of hand-wringing and there's a lot of upset uh, on the other side of the Potomac. Uh, there have been statements that, you know, we weren't going to talk about this. And the White House called an audible on Monday morning. They woke up. They were just pumped. Everybody wanted to have them on the air. And they had a great story to tell. But, you know, first reports are somewhat inaccurate. They were watching a feed that had no audio. No one had fully debriefed the team. And so everyone got out, not everyone, a few people, including the White House press secretary, got out in front of this thing a little bit. And the story began to change. And now here we are where maybe we've compromised some methods. Maybe we've compromised security on the part of some people, which I know no one wanted to do or or would ever want for the folks who were in harm's way. But, this is something that you learn only through an uh, experience
2: exactly that's exactly right i think if they could go back to you know saturday before the raid and spend a couple hours thinking through exactly how they were going to handle the aftermath of a successful raid because they probably spent more time thinking about how to handle the aftermath of of a failed raid uh one that went something like desert one and that that was obviously very much on their minds and um you know, as as you said, the, the first reports are always wrong. I mean, all the commanders say, right, you know, battle plan falls apart. Nothing ever goes the way you expect. Nothing's ever quite the way it looks in, in the first blush. Um, and there, there probably wasn't enough time spent. And I don't – this isn't a criticism. It's just how fast things unfold, thinking through – what um, what are the longer term implications of us putting out some of this information? Um, did we compromise some methods? It, are there some people who might be vulnerable because of because of this? I don't know what the answers to to those questions are, but they're they're much, It's much easier to see the questions in hindsight, let alone the answers.
0: Talking about hindsight, Didi, in that in one of those interviews you did uh, uh, to promote your book, Why Women Should Rule the World, uh, you talk at some length about your reaction to the. 1993 raid uh on the branch davidian compound in waco mm-hmm. texas can you bring us through that and and what your counsel was and 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 what ha- actually happened
2: um sure i you know um <laughs> it's 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 one of the rare times that i taught that, that that i disagreed with the president that th- there was actually some evidence that i could it's very hard to go back and say I, I, he should have taken my advice right we all do that this is one where he actually said it so i uh, so I i will talk about it briefly um, I think a lot of us who are uh a certain age uh remember the the uh branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. A crazy guy named David Koresh had a lot of kids and a lot of people uh h- h- holed up there. Uh and they got into a they st- they'd been in a standoff for how long, Josh? I can't remember. It'd been a while, it'd been a couple of weeks, uh, where they were trying to get him to come out and uh finally they decided they were gonna go in after him and ultimately the then Attorney General Janet Reno made the decision with the blessing of the president and so they decided to go in there and try to take him out they were very concerned about the welfare of 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 uh, many young children and the raid went very badly um Koresh ended up setting the entire compound on fire everybody in it perished uh it was a disaster and i'll never forget walking through the white house that day and every tv and every office throughout the building was on to the same scene flames shooting out the roof of this compound and uh we knew we had a uh, both a disaster a human disaster on our hands as well as a, a complex uh, political situation, and so in conversations about it, you know, you know who takes responsibility for this? And I did argue very strongly that it should be the president, because not only had Janet Reno, attorney general, come to him and essentially gotten his blessing, but he was the commander in chief. I mean, the buck stops with him for these kinds of decisions, and, um, you know, there were other people who argued that we ought to try to let the, the attorney general go out, and it it went badly. I mean, the, the reaction to the president sort of try, it, uh, appearing to try... Um, to slough off responsibility for something that went p- badly uh, was not was not well received around the country, particularly given the President's kind of political standing at that time. And in his book, uh, President Clinton's book, um, he he actually wrote about that and said he wished he had taken um, responsibility. And I think it's a good lesson for leaders that he, he, he didn't escape responsibility by trying to avoid it. In fact, he made it he he made it worse. So. Um, Yeah, it was a a terrible, a terrible day to remember.
1: Our conversation with Dee Myers here on polyoptics, on POTUS, politics in the United States, here on Sirius XM uh, 124. This week uh, also offered an interesting metaphor, I think, uh, for something that you talked about during this conversation, this sort of risk reward uh, prospect that's out there for presidents in terms of, uh, campaigning and otherwise of how far they can go, uh, to really break through and communicate well when the risk of having something go sideways or go wrong. For me, I, I think back, you know, if you, if you will remember this week, the, uh, Space Shuttle Endeavor went up uh, for the last time for this orbiter, and uh, President Obama had been down there in Florida with the intent of being there when it was going to go up on its first attempt. It didn't happen, as these things are wont to do. They they were postponed. Uh, a lot of emotion there, and just so much leadership for the United States of America around this program. Uh, I mean, I'm someone who is just captivated by what NASA and what uh, presidential leadership has meant uh... we do things that no one else on the planet can do uh... bill clinton i think was the last president to be at a uh... a shuttle launch uh... as president and and Barack obama went down there and i think there was great risk in doing that things can go wrong and there are right. a lot of things that are way beyond the control of the president but uh, i had great respect that the president went there i, I was sorry that he couldn't see it for himself um, but he did uh, speak to a lot of people who are losing jobs as the space shuttle program unwinds but talk for a second about that those are moments where even if you don't think it's the wisest uh, expenditure of our federal budget that uh, is incredibly inspiring to the world uh, right. and to see a president there uh, I think that demonstrates amazing leadership and it makes me think back to, uh, to President Clinton having been there and done that
2: well I, I think space program is a great example of how presidents not only you know sort of lead governments um, but they lead people and they can inspire us to dream and I think the space program more than almost anything else you can think of that the government's ever done has Has been about dreaming big um, And so I, th- I think it's a great example of yeah, it, it's a risky thing to say if you're President Kennedy We're going to put a man on the moon um, It's a risky thing for President Obama to even go down there to watch the last we've seen We've, you know, seen, we've seen the seen, worst happen We have seen some, sure. some terrible things happen and, But the But the But the the symbolism of capturing that aspiration, the aspirational parts of the presidency, are so important um, because we we do think of ourselves as a nation that aspires to do more, to be more, to reach higher um, than than most others, and that involves some level of risk. And I think presidents have to, you know, if they want to own the, if they want to help promote the aspirations, they have to own a little bit of the risk. Um, and that's that's that that's true for presence as it is for all of us in our lives. And I think there is there's there is downside. There's also great upside. And I think a lot of times what we've learned is that Americans will forgive you for trying, for trying to help us reach a little higher. They'll forgive the mistakes that come with that.
0: It's amazing. You know, uh, we, Dee and I and Adam have been talking about some events that happened uh, as long as uh, almost 20 years ago. And uh, we have formed our historical view of people like, john f kennedy through his his speech about going to the man going to the moon and bringing man safely back to earth we uh remember the uh peggy noonan scripted speech uh for ronald reagan about the challenger astronauts how they slipped the surly bonds of earth and touched the face of god and there's a piece out this week Dee uh that uh barack goodman uh the um Peabody Award-winning director is going to make the American Experience four-part, four-part special on Bill Clinton, and it seems like these. And it says that you did, and and it seems like these American Experience uh, documentaries for people who, uh, for people who don't remember much about Ronald Reagan and certainly don't remember John F. Kennedy at all, they sort of seal, seal history for these presidents. What do you think this PBS? Uh, upcoming documentary on Bill Clinton will do for his legacy.
2: Uh, well, yeah, as I just uh, as I as I said to you, the, the, I I actually talked to him a little bit, so I have a very small window, but I I think what he's trying to because it, it, he it takes a while, right? You could never do one of these things in the first year or two after a president leaves the White House. It takes the country a while to settle more or less, because we'll never settle completely on our opinions about about these leaders and about what was their legacy when people think about them, when we look at what's happened since. What did they do and what's happened as a result? Um, how, do, how do people feel and how does the Clinton story fit into our narrative, to our idea of ourselves and and of our own trajectory through history? Um, and I, I think that one of the things that's clearly a, a theme and I think will be a theme in, in Barack's ultimate uh, production is is Clinton's incredible ability to connect with people. And again, to, to, to become an embodiment in some ways of that aspirational aspect of the presidency. When people talk about him now, and he's still very active, and not only is he visible, he's out doing really great stuff. Um, and I think people, but people miss his energy and his love of people and his ability to draw them into the story and you know that was the greatest strength of his presidency really was his ability to draw people in and um to get them to want to be part of of the story and um it's and i and i think that part of that was people felt he was like a regular guy which we know he he in so many ways wasn't is um who came from humble roots and he people believed right to the very end of his presidency right i mean through the darkest days that when push came came to shove that he was for them he was on their side and he would act in their best interest even if he didn't always act in his own best interest um, and as a result his job approval rating through the darkest days of, of impeachment never got much below 60 I don't know if they ever went below 60 I don't think they did um, that's remarkable in hindsight that somebody could connect so completely that people would I don't want to say they forgave him but they thought he was doing an okay job even if they didn't approve of him personally um,
1: I worked for a president at a time in his presidency where I don't think approval ratings got above 30%. <laughs> right. So I think it is phenomenal. It's,
2: yeah, it was job versus personal, which is an interesting, you know, the way the American people kind of parsed it for themselves, if yeah. you will. But, um, yeah, and, you know, it's it's we will debate Clinton's legacy for a long time, but I think that will be one of the themes uh, of the American experience because that's how the public experienced this this 42nd president, Bill Clinton.
0: So, I want to ask Dee about one more incredibly famous picture uh, that not enough people have seen, but we will put it up on our website at polyoptics.com. It was taken by the eminent photographer Norman Jean Roy, and it captures one Dee Dee Myers in the back of a limousine in Washington, D.C. for Jones, New York. She is one of their empowerment ambassadors. Dee Dee, how did you get involved in this campaign? Uh,
2: you know, Jones, just uh, Jones, New York is a company that's been making clothes uh, for women work. Basically, work clothes, but you know, for women, all aspects of their lives for about forty years. It's a great company, uh, and they just came to me kind of out of the blue last summer and said, "Hey, we're going to do this campaign called Empower Your Confidence for Women, and you want to be part of it." And I was, you know, sure because you know I'm all about That's empowering women. That's my thing. So, um, it didn't initially envision me being in any photographs, but we were. We did a website that included a blog, and we got something called the Little Black Book of Career Advice, which is still online, and it's a wonderful thing. You can go and there's advice from all kinds of women about something that happened in their life or career and it's a wonderful little tool. So anyway, we also did a lunch and we gave empowerment grants to women either trying to start or expand businesses. Uh, and I was working with, you know, mentoring some of those women and then they came in. So we want to do this kind of local women and we want to put them in Jones clothes and show how they would, how they would look. So you know, I said, you know, sure. I didn't think a lot about it. That Norman Jean Roy is a photographer, very well known. I thought, oh, okay, great. I'll be photographed by Norman Jean Roy. Then they came to me with a prototype of a picture. and It was Hillary Clinton sitting in the back of a limo, and I thought, I don't know, because what's that make you think of? Right, right? Michael Deaver, exactly, uh, who was a top aide to President Reagan, who left the White House in the nineteen eighties and went into business as a lobbyist. And there was a picture of him on the cover of Newsweek magazine in the back of a chauffeur-driven Jaguar, and it was terrible. So I thought, oh, man, but I thought, well, I guess if it, if Hillary could get away with it, you know, if the Secretary of State could get away with it, I'm probably okay. Um, we took the picture and it came out very nice and they ended up plastering it all over bus shelters in Washington. You know, some women get their name in lights on Broadway and I get bus shelters in Washington, but it was great. <laughs> I mean, the campaign has been, has been great and Jones has been great um, but I didn't the only I only got a couple of people and I got to say they're at least my age or older um, who mentioned Michael Deaver so it's amazing how times move everybody on everybody
1: has to go to polyoptics.com see this picture it is worth taking a look at Dean Myers thank you very much for coming in to join us uh, in this conversation on polyoptics this experiment that uh, Josh and I carry on trying to talk about uh, the communications and the communicators and and the elements that uh, help bring American presidents and the presidency forward, not only for citizens of this country, but to the world. So thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. Thanks, guys.
0: Well, that was an amazing conversation with Dee Myers. We were talking about the, some of the women who will be center stage in the 2012 campaign. And perhaps as we as we finish another episode of Polyoptics, Adam, Uh, And we see some news about, uh, we began our conversation talking about Dominique Strauss-Kahn and the future of the IMF. And there's some headlines that are suggesting that the current French foreign minister, Christine Lagarde, could be a potential new head of the IMF. And if anyone hasn't seen the documentary from Charles Ferguson uh, that I think won the Academy Award called Inside Job, it does present... uh, Foreign Minister Lagarde as a very plain-spoken, very direct, and I think a a very effective uh, international uh, diplomat.
1: Yes, the uh, the current uh, French finance minister, and she is for real. I had a chance to meet her at the International Monetary Fund uh, a year ago, and uh, I think it would be a wonderful thing, not only for the fund, but uh, for the world, to see a truly qualified woman head that organization. Um, and I'll tell you, it was a phenomenal discussion. Uh, with D.D. Myers, and I think that uh, her experience and her insight into not only the struggles that she had uh, with being uh, underpowered in terms of her uh, her posting within the White House despite having the job really resonates with me, and I hope it, it resonates with, with all of you out there who are listening to us uh, both at uh, Sirius XM 124 or maybe picking up the show uh, at polyoptics.com, uh, because Every bit of equality comes straight down uh, to title and uh, placement, and Dee Dee Myers is uh, a woman who has really led the way, and uh, we're really lucky to have had her.
0: Yeah, and and, while 2012... May not be the year of the woman in the Republican Party, because frankly, it may not be the year of the man in the Republican Party, the way the current field is going and the strength of President Obama. Uh, you do see on the horizon people like Nikki Haley on the Republican side and and, Demo- and a lot of uh, rising women on, uh, on the Republican side and a lot of rising women on the Democratic side as well. Uh, when the field is wide open in 2016, uh, it may be again the time for women to rise and finally take the White House.
1: Thank everybody, for listening to us here on Sirius XM 124. You've been listening to Polyoptics. I'm Adam Belmar. And for Josh King, we bid you adieu.